Hello everyone, welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one of the Stephen King... <laughs> I'm sorry, it's been a while. Uh, guys, just so you know, um, I'm recording this, it is April 29th? Um, I have not recorded an episode in quite some time, so I apologize if my intro was less than stellar. Uh, so for everyone that is returning, I don't know why, but thank you for, for coming back uh, to the Stephen King cast. And for everyone that is joining us for the first time, uh, please know that I usually have my stuff together a little bit better than, than I do. Um, right now. But anyway, thank you everyone for, for showing up to the Stephen King cast. One man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I used to review each of Stephen King's works in the chronological order of publication, and nowadays, I just kind of ramble on with uh, whatever topic uh, sort of pops up into the, the ether. So uh, today is going to just be some... Some some random observations, um, and then I'll have uh, probably I'll, I'll talk about some some deeper stuff uh, in regards to the podcast towards the end of the episode. So everyone that has been waiting for a a new episode, um, thank you for being patient. This is definitely the longest stretch by far where I have not released an episode. I have prided myself in the fact that I usually, usually nine times out of ten, I was able to release at least one episode per week um, with uh, my record being six episodes in one day. So I know that as a podcast fan myself, it, it kind of drives me nuts. I just kind of go stir crazy when I don't get one of my favorite podcasts on, on the weekly basis uh, that, that was, you know, sort of promised uh, when you listen to a podcast. So, I mean, the idea that the idea that I was not putting out a podcast uh, on on time was was kind of kind of bothering me. Uh, so it, it's been hanging over my head. I've had the podcast ready to go. I, I just really haven't found the time to to record this particular episode. But here I am. And uh, so what we'll be talking about today, uh, I'm going to talk about uh, you know I'm going to go through some listener emails. Going to do some iTunes reviews. Um, I am going to, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, talk about some Dark Tower movie news that has popped up lately, um, and I am going to discuss some of the Easter eggs uh, in 11.22.63, and then I'll conclude with a look at um, a, a top 10 list, or actually it's a, it's a top 8 list uh, from, a, from a website that broke down uh, eight Stephen King characters who deserve their own book that I thought would prompt an interesting conversation. So I expect a lot of emails uh, once I start talking about that. So first up, before I get any further, I would like to shamelessly plug my own material. Uh, so everyone that's been listening for a while knows that I have been shameless um, in my self-promotion in regards to the short stories that, that I have written because I've been fortunate enough to have uh, at this point, four short stories that have been accepted for publication, and uh, trying to uh, submit an unsolicited um, script is and and to have it published is is very very challenging. So it's awesome that that there are four of them out there. Uh, so if you do like the Stephen King cast and you like uh, my thoughts on Stephen King and would like to see how well I'm able to dabble in the 
the genre that made Stephen King famous, then there are some options for you. The first is um, a magazine by the name of Dark Moon Digest, uh, particularly issue number 22. Um, this was edited by Laurie Michelle and Max Booth III. Uh, you can either download it on your Kindle or you can order a physical copy that will be sent to your house. It's a good-looking copy. Uh, it's a good-looking book, and it's just always good to have an actual physical copy on hand. And the short story that I wrote... Um, is entitled Room 207, and it's, it's I mean, for fans of Stephen King, I mean, you're going to like it. I guarantee you that you're going to like it. It's just a, it's a fun what if. What if a husband was traveling uh, to, to catch up with his wife, uh, stops in at a at the wrong motel and definitely stays in the wrong room. So it's a, uh, I just think, I had a lot of fun writing it. I think that everyone will have a lot of fun reading it. So that is Dark Moon Digest, issue number 22. The short story is Room 207. Up next, we have Nine Tales Told in the Dark, issue number nine. The story uh, in that one is This World Will Eat You All the Way Up. And uh, this is also about uh, another road traveler, except two road travelers fresh out of college, uh, two best friends, uh, and there's some animosity that's growing uh, unspoken between them. And it's all about uh, what... Uh, what happens when you don't speak about the things that are festering away in the back of your mind and what happens when those things fester through the back of your mind to the forefront of your brain. Up next, we have Wax and Wayne, A Gathering of Witch Tales, edited by David T. Neal. And this one is just a uh, anthology all about witches and witchcraft. And my short story is entitled Hopscotch. Um, and this was fun. I had a lot of fun writing this one. And it's just a, a, a humorous, dark little tale of uh, just a bratty 13-year-old girl that uh, runs afoul of a much more dangerous, uh, dangerous evil than 13-year-old than girls can be. And lastly, uh, there's a magazine that will be coming out in August entitled Trists of Fate. Within it, you can find my short story, Forget Me Not. And it's an existential mana, um, existential, uh, um, sorry, uh, it's an existential examination of of relationships and breakups and, and the identities that, that we form when we're with someone and what happens when we when we break apart from somebody. So I think that uh, I think that all four of them are uh, different enough from each other to, to get um, uh, to have a lot of variety. Um, so just uh, give it a shot, guys. Um, reach out uh, to your your computer, type in Amazon and just uh, let your fingers fly over the keyboard and type in Dark Moon Digest or Nine Tales Told in the Dark, Wax and Wayne, A Gathering of Witch Tales or Trists of Fate. Pre-order now. Um, and, uh, you know, if you've liked my thoughts, uh, check out my writing and let me know what you think. Um, okay, up next, I want to read some iTunes uh, reviews because I can't do it without the iTunes reviews, guys. And I appreciate everything that everyone has ever said about the Stephen King cast uh, on iTunes. Like I've said before in the past, it really legitimizes this podcast when uh, the reviews start coming in. It bumps up the the podcast to the top of a search. So anyone that um, 
types in Stephen King and looks under podcasts, the more reviews there there are um, and the more traffic there is on that particular um, podcast, it's going to uh, generate, it's going to bump it up on, on the list. So um, so when you type in Stephen King, um, depending on, on, on what... Oh, on, on, on what day? Sometimes I, I type it in, Stephen King cast pops up as number one. Sometimes it pops up as, as number two, but it is the highest rated, which is fantastic. And I really appreciate that, guys. That's all you. That's all you just really, really helping out um, this podcast. So up first, we have um, a review from AKA Utensils, who writes, Everything You Wanted from Lit 203. This is an excellent Stephen King-centered podcast that provides analysis of his books and film. The host delivers thoughts and links to other SK works as well as recurring themes in my favorite section entitled Kingisms. It's like a book club without having to interact with others where everyone loves Stephen King tales as much as you do. So, aka Utensils, thank you for writing in. Um, up next we have uh, the, the username, yeah, but no, but yeah. But that's awesome. I like that. Uh, so, uh, yeah, but no, but yeah, but writes insightful. Uh, and as a constant reader, this podcast has helped me enjoy the works of Stephen King on entirely different and deeper levels. I could try and write something beautiful about how he has helped me progress along the path of the beam, but I'm a reader, not a writer. All I can say is I'm so glad I found the wealth of insight. I bet you will be too. Hear him well. Oh, that's awesome. What a great way to end it. So I'm going to say it one more time because it's just so awesome. Yeah, but no, but yeah, but is uh, thank you. Thank you so much for writing in. Uh, great, great username. And then uh, Lady Had a Fang writes pretty much the Stephen King podcast. I mostly came across this looking for Stephen King stuff as I've gotten into him as of late and wanted to read as many of his books as I can. It was 2014 when I really got into him via Pet Cemetery. Anyway, his podcast is excellent. The passion for Stephen King's works really does shine through and it's pretty infectious. And the host makes some interesting points that I hadn't thought of before. And some of his stuff, like his analysis of Wizarding Glass, is just spot on. And it's been very soothing to listen to. I know that whenever I was in a really tight spot emotionally, I'd go there and listen to it. Also, the choices of intro and outro music are excellent. 1973 by James Blunt for Joyland, for example. And he gives some love to other criminally underrated novels, such as Needful Things and Insomnia, which recently finished. It's excellent. All in all, I definitely say if you're a Stephen King fan, give it a shot. It's definitely worth it. Lady Had a Fang, uh, thank you so much. And I'm really glad that I was able to, to help out. Um, like I said, I know that, that, that podcasts... Uh, they're a big part of my life. I love I love listening to podcasts and just and, and just decompressing. And um, if I'm yeah, if I'm wound up over something, um, just knowing that I can pop on a podcast and just chill out, it just really helps out. So to know that I can do that to someone else is, is awesome. Up next we have Paige Up who writes great insights. Been looking for this for years. Having read everything SK has put out at least twice, some up to five times, it is great to listen to someone who has read them all too. This podcast has made me look at some of the books differently and has forced me to reread some in a different light. Thank you for making SK more enjoyable. I didn't think it was possible. Um, so page up. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, up next, we have Blue Moon Bandy who writes, Wonderful podcast. Well thought out. 
well-researched, very professional. Great analysis from a true King fan. Walks the line of not being too dull with his analysis and not being too loose or unorganized. Highly recommended. Blue Moon Bandy, thank you so much. Uh, then we have Dude Runner, who writes, Best podcast ever. First things first, this isn't just a great Stephen King podcast. This is a great podcast, period. Not only is the host articulate and insightful about King's work, but his relationship with the listener is a friendly, respectful, and enjoyable one. You'll feel like you're dissecting a favorite novel with a beloved friend. And even when the host is discussing a book you haven't read, by the end of the podcast, you'll be inspired to pick it up. Example, for years, I've heard that Tommyknockers wasn't a very good novel, at least until listening to the Stephen King cast. The host, constant reader, brushed off the critical consensus and instead saw a novel of unique wounded insight, plunging the reader into the depths of addiction, yet also embracing the fun goofiness of a B-movie alien invasion. I was intrigued, so I picked up the hefty tome and, to my surprise, devoured the book more quickly than any other SK book to date. It was weird, but boy, did I love it. So, if you like Stephen King, this podcast is a no-brainer. And if you're not sure, try it. You won't be disappointed. And then uh, V. Liebeck writes, finally, a podcast. So, I'm sorry, uh, Dude Runner. Um, thank you. Thank you for the very, very thorough um, review. That, that I mean, that was... That was awesome. Um, I, I just I really appreciate all the kind words. And lastly, we have V. Liebeck, who writes, I came across this podcast um, about six months ago after embarking on a New Year's resolution to reread the Dark Tower series with tie-ins. If you are someone like me who loves reading, who loves the King universe, but whose friends have yet to follow your reading recommendations, you have found your place. Constant reader slash podcaster does a fantastic job of analyzing each work through and through while providing a summary at the beginning to reorient you with books that you might have long forgotten. Constant reader also does an excellent job of communicating with listeners throughout various email platforms or various platforms and by engaging fellow readers via email opening openly in the podcast or through social media. Though I don't always agree with his opinions, it's great to get another constant reader's perspective. These podcasts are great for those with wild minds and agonizing commutes. This podcast is often a staple in my daily and weekly routine as I reread and backtrack my way through King's work. So thanks again for writing in, everyone. Um, keep those... Um, Keep those iTunes reviews coming because, like I said, it really, really legitimizes the, the Stephen King cast. Okay, guys, up next what I want to do, I just want to, to uh, read some of the, the listener emails that, um, that our last uh, review just, just referenced. Um, so first up, we have Charles who writes, um, Way back in your review of Nightmares and Dreamscapes review was posted, I was really excited to listen to what you had to say about Dolan's Cadillac. It's probably my favorite short story of King's, and I've read it upwards of 50 times. Besides being an obvious homage to Edgar Allan Poe, one of the things I admire about the story is King's ability to convey the passage of long periods of time in such a short work. I find this pretty rare in short stories, at least from the authors I read, and it's not something King does often himself, although he did it masterfully in the novella Apt Pupil. But in this case, the passage of so many years really enhances the feeling of anticipation. It also highlights just how distraught Robinson is over the murder of his wife and how far he's willing to go to exact revenge. He's a bit of an everyman. But I also liken him to Eddie Kasprak from It because of his meekness and slight build, but minus the nagging mother and later wife. The lengths he goes to get to Dolan, and the punishment he's willing to take, which is all too well described when he's on the road crew, and the fact that in the end he suffers permanent damage gives the story a perfect ending, at least in my opinion. 
Revenge stories are always tricky, and this one hits all the right notes. It also has the feel of channeling Poe through a 40 or 50s pulp noir filter. With that being said, if you haven't already bothered with the movie, even though I haven't seen every King adaptation, in fact I've gone on my way to avoid quite a few, this has to be one of the worst. I remember hearing sometime in the mid-90s that Bruce Willis and Sylvester Stallone were attached to play Robinson and Dolan respectively and thinking that there was a chance they might be able to pull it off, but flash forward 20-something years and throw in Christian Slater along with what must have been a microscopic budget and a writer who apparently had limited storytelling ability and almost zero respect for the source material, and you get a horrible straight-to-DVD piece of crap that's not even good enough for late-night deep cable TV. Up next is my thoughts on the 112263 series. And again, feel free to... Um, I'm sorry, he's just writing to me specifically. Uh, uh, okay, so I'm a huge fan of 112263, the book. In fact, when I first discovered your podcast, the episodes I look forward to the most were 112263 episode and all of the Dark Tower ones. I've read it four times, the last time being in January in anticipation of the miniseries. Having been a King fan since I was probably 10 or 11 and still being as much a fan at 43, one thing I figured out pretty quick is that most King adaptations just plain suck. For every Shining, Shawshank Redemption, or Stand By Me, there seems to be four or five thinners, bag of bones, or apt pupils. I admit in my younger years, I'd always get annoyed, even angry, watching King adaptation, even a pretty good one like Christine, because of all of the changes. As I got older and developed more of an appreciation for movies and television shows, I was able to look at some of his early adaptations differently and realize that we're talking about completely different mediums and that changes just weren't inevitable, but often necessary. And at the end of the day, even the worst King adaptations can never take away from the original story. That being said, I went into 112263 with pretty high hopes. I'm a big fan of the new extended miniseries format that's become popular in the last few years with shows like True Detective and even the X-Files reboot, which may not have been great, but I enjoyed it for what it was. I thought this kind of format would be perfect for 112263, and I still do. But something seems to be lacking. The acting is, by and large, great. The cinematography is top-notch. The flaws I can't help but notice all seem to be in the writing. I don't think it's horrible by any means, but it does seem like there's a quit, quite a bit of unreached potential. I'm not going to break down each episode since you've already done that and better than I ever could, but I will gloss over the, forced for, the first four episodes and get into episode five, which in my opinion is riddled with flaws and is the first episode that was more bad than good. When I saw episode one for the first time, the younger me hated all the changes that kicked in, but after watching it a second time, I thought it was a pretty solid, changes and all. The second episode was the high watermark. I didn't realize it at the time, but I doubt any of the last three episodes are going to be able to touch it. Besides the obvious greatness of Annette O'Toole and the fact that despite it not being in Derry, it really was Derry, everything about the episode was damn near perfect. Any negative feelings I had about the changes were wiped away. In fact, I saw them as a good thing because now I'm not always going to know what's going to happen. That lasted a week. I thought episodes three and four were, well, just kind of there. Not horrible, not great. Some hits, some misses, but at the end of the day, just felt average. Which brings us to episode 5. Wow, what a mess. I'm not the one that coined the term, but some people refer to Franco's character in two ways. Stupid Jake and Smart Jake. Smart Jake seemed to emerge in episode 2 and was mostly present in episodes 3 and 4, but still with the occasional descent back into Stupid Jake. By episode 5, we not only have Stupid Jake back with only occasional flashes of Smart Jake, but a third Jake I'm going to refer to as Dick Jake. 
His and Bill's relationship has always been a bit antagonistic with the big brother, little brother dynamic. But the way he treats poor Bill in this episode made me hope that every time he was on the phone, no matter where he was, a car would come crashing in and wiping out. I started noticing what I saw as little inconsistencies in episodes 3 and 4, but was usually able to overlook them, usually because there are so many great actors that would carry a scene anyway, or sometimes because I knew that something really didn't make a whole lot of sense other than to push the plot forward, but for some reason, all these little issues seemed to not only multiply in issue 5, but became extremely annoying. First off, stupid Jake and Bill are standing on General Walker's lawn in broad daylight on the spot where Lee Harvey Oswald is going to fire off a shot the next night. Nothing inconspicuous about that, right? Couldn't they have at least done it at night and made an attempt at not being seen? Aren't they worried about one of the neighbors spotting them or their car um, and talking to the police the next day? Deke. Goddamn Deke. I like the character and hey, I even like swearing, but Deke doesn't strike me as the type to take the Lord's name in vain at a high school in Texas in 1962. It just doesn't seem like something he'd want to risk a student hearing. And why wait until now to invoke a morals clause to fire Jake when he should have done it the day he bailed him out of the whorehouse? I don't know. Maybe he was giving him a second chance, but it didn't really ring true to me. Furthermore, why the sudden 180 when he shows up at Sadie's house after the attack? He just lies to a cop and suddenly they're best friends again. No major issue, I guess. It just seems inconsistent. Let me back up for a second to just before Deke arrives to the scene of the attack and introduce a fourth Jake. Petulant Jake. Sure, I understand he's pretty distraught, but he did just kill a guy, and answering a few basic questions would be in his best interest. Perhaps it's because I read a lot of police procedurals and crime books, but instead of just repeating himself over and over again like a petulant child, he could have explained things pretty quickly. He's her ex-husband, he's been following us, he slashed her face and tried to force me to drink bleach. We got the upper hand. I'm going to back up from there to the scene where Johnny calls Jake. So much wrong with this scene. First off, Dick, first off, Dick Jake emerges again when he calls Bill to tell him he's on his own. Rather than take 10 seconds to explain that Sadie's being attacked, he leaves the poor guy hanging. Sadie's been attacked. You're on your own. But no, Jake has to keep giving Bill the short end of the stick and treating him like crap after the poor guy has been nothing but loyal to him for the past two years. Can we talk about James Franco running for a second? Wow, I'm not sure James Franco has ever run in his life before filming that scene. I doubt it was intended to be comical, but man, did he look awkward. Cut to Sadie's house. Overall, I thought this whole scene was really strong, with one exception. Bleach? Really. Johnny Clayton is obviously psychotic, and the actor playing him was doing one hell of a job, but Johnny never struck me as stupid. I'm going to hand my nemesis a glass of bleach. What could possibly go wrong? Just plain stupid. Unfortunately, things didn't get any better at the hospital. We have Jake being questioned again and just being petulant. I can't see any reason why they basically split this conversation, conversation and make two scenes out of it. Petulant Jake reemerges, and I think the cop finally walked away because he was sick of him. Another scene with Deke which just didn't make sense to me is when the student stands up and says everyone wants to donate blood. Why is Deke the one to lead the way? Does he know where he's going? It's not like he's the principal of the hospital. Shouldn't he shouldn't have a doctor shouldn't he have a doctor flag down a nurse? And the way that Deke stands up and starts walking just seemed funny, like he was leading a parade. The only thing he was missing was a baton. And somehow it gets worse. First, we not only have stupid and dick Jake, but he takes it to a whole level. Like a bad running stupid three-headed dick monster when he calls Bill. Poor Bill. I like the guy more and more every time he's on screen. He may not be the brightest guy, but damn is he loyal. And the scene when he was trying to spot Oswald um, take out Walker, but he thinks his sister is heartbreaking. But he thinks he sees his sister as heartbreaking. 
But of course, the three-headed dick monster Jake is too stupid to realize that this was his past pushing back. And even though they were talking on the phone, he literally walks away from Bill. As I said earlier, I was really hoping a car would crash through the hospital at that point and leave Bill to carry on Jake's mission. I hate to use an outdated phrase like jump the shark, and I'm not saying that the show itself has, but as far as I'm concerned, the character of Jake did that in that scene. I don't know if that was a choice the writers made or if it came from Franco, but it was horrible. So now we get to a scene right out of every crappy sitcom ever. My jaw dropped when the doctor started explaining that they did all they could and the three-headed dick monster only made it worse. And of course, after 30 seconds or so of bad sitcom, we get Jake in mid-conversation turning around and running. Yes, he's running again. Holy crap, did I want to reach this screen and throttle that jerk. By the way, how did he know where Sadie's room was? At this point, they should have cut their losses and faded to credits. But no, we go from bad sitcom to bad running to a scene out of a bad romantic comedy. Sadie, beautiful as ever and laughing, despite the fact that a few hours ago her face was slashed and she shot her ex-husband and Jake finally coming clean about being from the future. It was so contrived and sappy that I had to put the beer I was drinking down and do a double shot of Jack Daniels just to get through the last five minutes. Sadie considers this wild explanation for maybe three seconds before giving in and believing him. Unbelievable. Change out Sadie's cut for something like a car accident, remove any talk of time travel, and recast the two actors with Jennifer Aniston and Owen Wilson, and you have the ending to every crappy romantic comedy ever made. If you've made it this far, constant reader, thanks. And sorry, I didn't think we'd go this long. Long days and pleasant nights. M-O-O-N spells three-headed dick monster, Charles. Charles, thank you for this awesomely epic uh, email. I, I just loved your review of 112263, and you put it so succinctly um, and so articulately uh, in a way that I definitely never could. Up next, we have Marianne who writes, Hi, I just found your cast and I just wanted to say thank you so much for putting this together. I'm a botanical illustrator from Edinburgh in Scotland studying for a diploma in botanical illustration um, at the botanical gardens here. So whilst sitting painting, my favorite thing to listen to are King's audiobooks. I've been a fan for over 20 years, and the first book I picked up on the recommendation of my then-boyfriend was Christine. I got twitchy walking between the cars to cross the road for a while. Luckily, I was then living in uh, Snedonia in North Wales, so that wasn't too much of an issue. But I was living with a load of petrol heads, so there were a lot of engines around. I loved it, and a king reading monster was created. I find king to be creepy, thrilling, and fun but also somewhat of a comfort blanket that I can return to. I am well and truly addicted. I love when I find a volume that I somehow missed and get to read more. When not studying, I read whenever I can, so it's been great to discover the world of audiobooks since I started painting. I get to read all day. Thank you for your cast. It's so good to listen to, as well as while I paint and draw. I don't know how many two fans there are in Edinburgh, so it's nice if somewhat one-sided to listen to a discussion of some of my favorite books. And I'm enjoying the movie reviews, too. Big-time big King Cinema fan, too. I've listened up to the Shining episodes thus far. Your effort is very much appreciated. My faves, very difficult. Christine, because she was my first. Carrie, The Stand, The Talisman, The Dark Tower. It's so hard to choose. Luckily, I can choose as many as I like. I also really like Rose Matter and Dolores Claiborne. Six pins, Dolores. I always hear that when I pull the washing machine, when I pull out the washing, and the Mr. Mercedes series, and Joyland. 
Okay, got to go. If you want to see my creations, which are totally unrelated, um, head on over to uh, www.mariannehazelwood.co.uk. Um, and guys, uh, if you want to see something crazy, I strongly recommend that you check out this website because, um, you know, Marianne has just described how she sits and she paints. These do not look like paintings. They look like photographs. They're really, really cool. So go and check out www.mariannehazelwood.co.uk and enjoy. Um, up next, we have um, Lauren who writes... Dear Stephen Kingcast, I might be cheating to try and answer my own question here, but I really do like your idea of sending in suggestions for top 10 Stephen King women, and I'm looking forward to seeing others take on it as well. I admit I might have to make some painful cuts here. I think when Stephen King really gets women right, he gets them wonderfully right. So along the way, I might have to make some painful cuts. So in no particular order, here are my takes. Number one. Dolores Claiborne. I think I pretty much fell in love with this character the moment I opened the book. The way that she was so self-assured and witty, even in the face of a police investigation, was amazing. And she probably has to be one of the best character voices that Stephen King has ever written. And considering his knack for character voices, that says volumes. Then you go on and you see a genuinely loving mother determined to do what she can to keep her kids safe from her husband. A woman of incredible strength. Her standing, excuse me, her standing up to Joe's abuse is definitely a punch-the-air moment. A woman with a great sense of humor. A woman who's willing to stand up to bullies, from how Vera treats one of her employees to Joe. And a woman who is stuck, who's stuck with her employer in her employer's worst moments and was probably the only friend she had, twisted as that is. She's an incredibly layered character. And though strong is a cliche here... Um, sorry. And though strong is a kind of cliche here, Dolores has a lot of strength in her. Number, 20, number two, Jesse Burlingame. I just admire her resourcefulness in terms of getting out of Gerald's handcuffs and managing to make her way, while having lost quite a lot of bit of blood, out of the cabin away from Jubert. And King does a wonderful job exploring her psyche while she's alone in that cabin and the memories that come up. And in terms of what I read about repressed memories, King definitely seems to have done his homework, so kudos to him and how she ultimately deals with those memories. Plus, she has a lot of guts kicking Gerald in the crotch at the beginning and later spitting in Jubert's face in the courtroom. That was an amazing moment. Jessie is definitely one of my recent favorites thanks to her strength, her guts, and her cleverness and resourcefulness and determination. Number three, Wendy Torrance. I confess that if I have one beef with the Kubrick version of The Shining, it's how it took the took out the character development from the book and Wendy is definitely one of them. King did a really good job of fleshing her out with her worries about Jack and Danny both and the backstory with her issues with her mother, which was really well done. And when things got really bad, Wendy really steps up to fight back, all with a lot of courage, cleverness, determination, and protectiveness towards her son. Movie Wendy isn't terrible. Shelley Duvall does a great job, and movie Wendy has her moments, but Kubrick definitely reduced her character development drastically. 4. Nadine Cross This was a hard one because a lot of the women in the stand are just incredible, from Fran to Dana Jurgens to Mother Abigail and plenty more. I have a soft spot for Nadine. She's such a tragic character, and I felt terrible for her, especially with her backstory. It's been a long while since I read The Stand, but I'm starting to wonder... If, in a way, her dreams about Flag could also represent a desire to belong that she didn't get from her adoptive family, which ends up putting her in an even worse trap. Nadine isn't just your cliché femme fatale character. She's got a lot of layers um, to her. 
Um, there's her being a sort of mother figure to Leo, for example, and a lot of pathos. Her fate, her fate is horrifying, awe-inspiring, at least in terms of how she manages to stay defiant towards Flag and tell him that his plans are going to come crashing down. It's incredibly, it's incredibly tragic. Number five, Holly Gibney. This wasn't a character that I expected to love, but she ended up on my list of favorites regardless. I kind of have issues similar to hers, being anxious and whatnot, so maybe there's a bit of that in my placement on of her on this list. But aside, Holly is awesome. She's incredibly tech-savvy, endearingly nerdy. I think one of my favorite parts of Finders Keepers was her movie obsession. Her and Jerome geeking out about Jonah Hill. Brave, yeah. Brady, you should not have, spoiler alert, kill Janie Patterson because once Holly gets brave, it's like nothing can stop her. Compassionate, the way she deals with Tina when Tina comes to Hodges and company for help, and generally very endearing. And you're right, she and Jerome really were the ones who saved the day, not Hodges. Holly was definitely one who subdued Brady, which is simultaneously scary and an awesome moment because it really shows what happens when Holly Gibney gets angry enough. Number six, Polly Chalmers from Needful Things. She's funny. She's kind. Her relationship with Nettie is really sweet and makes Nettie's death even that much harder. Her backstory with Kelton is very well handled, as well as her struggle with arthritis. It was actually kind of like I was feeling the pain along with her. King did that great job in portraying it. And her ultimately taking off the Azka and crushing it while it's still in its spider form is definitely another punch-the-air moment. Plus, her showing up at the climax to try and help Alan. She's a cool character, and I'm hoping that if there are ever spin-off books with Alan Pangborn, she'd definitely make a return appearance. Number seven, Molly from Storm of the Century. I hate what she ends up going along with um, in the climax of the miniseries, but prior to this, she's pretty cool. She's compassionate. Her comforting Sandy when the latter reveals she's going to leave Robbie, really good with the kids under her care, and has sort of an authority where, like Mike, she doesn't have to start shouting to be heard. She's got this really quiet sort of voice, and yet can give off the vibes of, I'm in charge. Her telling the others to leave Cat Withers alone after Cat basically mind-controlled into murdering Billy. And I just feel so bad for Cat. She was one of many people who went through a substantial amount of crap in that miniseries. It's pretty awesome. For example, honestly, her and Jonah Stanhope are pretty awesome in that scene. I think she's kind of like, um, like Mike's uh, counterpart at the shelter with her, Ursula, and Tess. Ursula and Tess are also pretty awesome. Ursula needling Robbie about pitching in actually did make me smile. And Tess's no-nonsense attitude on screen is a delight. She's one of those more minor characters who stand out. Trying to keep things together. And Deborah Farentino is fantastic, along with Julianne Nicholson, Tim Daly, Colm Fiore, Becky Ann Baker, and Jeffrey DeMunn. She's one of my favorite performances in the miniseries. Some standout moments include after Linoge takes Ralphie, and she's in the therapist's office, and she's not outright sobbing, but you can definitely feel the guilt and grief she has, along with the burden of keeping this horrible secret. And earlier, her scenes with Mike... Um, and her scenes with people like Sandy, etc. Molly's got a lot of grace and dignity to her, but she also has a dark streak. Um, and she writes, uh, her suggesting Linoge have an accident and her going along with the decision to give Linoge one of the kids mostly because she thinks it will save the other kids. Um, thinking of the line she has when she's agreeing to this horrible decision, to lose one in life is better to lose all of them in death. From Molly's point of view, not that it excuses what she does or what the townspeople do, she's doing it because the alternative, Linoge killing all eight children is too horrible to fathom, makes her very interesting. Number eight, Susanna from the Dark Tower series. She's a really awesome character. 
She's kind. Her sympathy towards Father Callahan when he talks about Lupe is one of those moments. She's had to go through a lot of crap to be the woman she ends up becoming, as incredibly resilient and strong. In terms of casting for drawing of the three movie, on a side note, I was thinking Freema Agiman, who played Martha on Doctor Who. She's probably a bit older for the part. Susanna's supposed to be in her 20s, but she could definitely play Susanna's compassion and courage incredibly well and play the roles of Detta and Odetta. She kind of acted two different versions of Martha in the Doctor Who episodes, the, Son the Sontarian Stratagem and the Poisoned Sky. So I think she could play these different sides of Susanna, including the personal integration. Number nine, Annie from Joyland. The stress of being a mother to a terminally ill son is very well written, as well as her difficult relationship to her father. Plus, her ultimately saving Devon from Lane was an amazing moment. Number 10, although she's a lot younger than the rest of the characters on this list, Abra Stone from Dr. Sleep. Like I said in my previous email, King did a great job of writing Abra without the usual stereotypes of a preteen teenage character. I credit this to King being able to write adolescence incredibly well and of course his emotional honesty in his writing, which would have been an easy trap to fall into. She's a very likable character and you identify with her and of course she's not perfect, her obsessive anger towards the true not, for example, and her more reckless nature. Those imperfections really make her feel realistic without being a preteen slash teenage stereotype. And of course, she really holds her own uh, against the true knot, which is awesome. Honorable mentions, Rhea of the Coos. I wouldn't call her a favorite per se, but her part in Wizard and Glass and how neatly she manipulates events, including Susan Delgado's execution and Roland accidentally killing his mother is bone chilling. Every time she was on the page, she was terrifying, whether she be cyclically manipulating Susan Delgado or even in Roland's hallucinations of her. I agree that she's definitely one of Stephen King's best villains. Mother Abigail from The Stand. First off, I think it's really refreshing change of pace not to have a wise old man as the mentor. I blame Tolkien, honestly, and the one standing against the forces of evil, but a wise old woman. And I like that King showed her with a lot of strength and a lot of warmth, but also that she has flaws, which I think is very rare in a mentor character. She's a generally good person, but even she has her imperfections, which definitely adds layers to her character. Rose McClendon. I know that Rose Matter isn't considered one of King's best, but I really do admire the main character so far. I haven't finished the book. She's resourceful, intelligent, brave, clever, and her overall arc of recovering from years of an abusive marriage to Norman is really well done. Tess from Big Driver. I admit I was actually thrown off while first reading Big Driver by stuff like the cat seeming to talk, but that said, Tess herself is a great character. She's determined, she's brave, she's resourceful, and honestly, rereading Big Driver, she's really smart and an unconventional thinker. And her talent for doing voices really does come in handy in terms of finding the people who set up her rape and giving them what they deserve, which I think is pretty unconventional and pretty awesome. And these are my takes on the top 10 Stephen King women. I'm definitely curious as to what others' take might be. So, Lauren, thank you for writing in. That was awesome. Um, so, everyone, you know, I'd, I'd like your thoughts. Um, I'm, I'm not going to get around to, to writing a list of, of my own, not anytime soon. So if you want to share your thoughts, please write in to stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Um, you can definitely write in your top 10 list of um, Stephen King um, women or Stephen King heroes or mentors or deaths or any of the other 
top 10 lists that, that I have provided. So we definitely like your thoughts here at Stephen King Cast. So just write into Stephen King Cast at yahoo.com. Hey guys, uh, before we move on um, to some Dark Tower news and some um, just some other stuff, uh, just everyone should check out the, uh, just a quick plug, check out the, the World of Leathercraft by Ellen Sanders. If you're in a need for a, uh, a custom pop culture inspired new wallet, be sure to check her out. It's, it's pretty fun stuff and I thought that I'd give her a, a quick shout out. Okay guys, so now what I want to do, I just want to read um, just a... Uh, well, let me get to it. Um, a Dark Tower article uh, that that hit a little while ago. It's old news at this point, but just let me let me read it. Hopefully, the uh, the web page will load uh, for whatever reason. I'm having uh, internet lag right now, uh, which sucks. But over the last couple of weeks, there has been some some movement on the the Dark Tower movie. Uh, it is filming, <clears throat> and there have been some. Uh, some casting news items that I, I want to address. Uh, the the first of which um, is Jackie Earl Haley has been cast in the movie. Jackie Earl Haley, known to many as uh, Rorschach from the Watchmen adaptation, and uh, the uh, the 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 man who unfortunately uh, had to slip into the glove that. Robert Englund made famous uh, when he when he took on the role of Freddy Krueger in the like why the the why would you do it um, uh, uh, remake of A Nightmare on Elm Street <clears throat> and you know I mean he's popped up here and there uh, for those of you who don't know him I'm sure that if you see him you would definitely you would definitely recognize him but he has been cast in The Dark Tower from an article in. Uh, Entertainment Weekly, uh, they, they, they published this and they wrote, The Dark Tower just got a little darker. This was from April 14th, by the way. Jackie Earl Haley is in negotiations to play the fearsome vampire leader Sayer in Sony's big screen adaptation of the sprawling Stephen King fantasy EW has confirmed. Haley, who was known for playing uh, the masked vigilante Rorschach and Watchmen and the supernatural killer Freddy Krueger in the Nightmare on Elm Street remake, would join a cast including Idris Elba as the heroic gunslinger Roland Deschain and Matthew McConaughey as his nemesis, the so-called Men in Black. Danish filmmaker Nikolai um, or Nikolaj Arcel um, is directing The Dark Tower, which he co-wrote with Anders Thomas Jensen, Akiva Goldsman, and Jeff Pinkner. Uh, King's epic tale spans multiple books and follows Deschain on a quest to find a mythical tower pop-ups at the center of all time and space to protect it from forces of evil. The author himself recently told EW the movie will not adapt the plot of the first book, 1982's The Gunslinger, and will begin instead in media race. Um, so just a couple thoughts about that. First of all, um, again, it, it goes back to don't expect Gunslinger. Don't expect an adaptation of The Gunslinger. King has said it. Um, there are reviews of the original draft on which they are are, are using as a foundation to make this movie um, that, that show just how different it's going to be. So I recently posted on Facebook that um, I'm getting more and more interested in this because, yes, they are deviating. <laughs> they're deviating from the original book, but they're deviating from the original book by using the other books. I mean, it's not like they're just making sweeping changes. They're taking from all of the the other elements from the books, so it's still it's still faithful. It's 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 like when a comic book movie is made, it's not it's not necessarily made with one particular storyline or or one particular issue. 
filmmakers and writers now draw from the entire mythos of a particular character when crafting you know these movies so it, it, it makes sense to me that they would do the same thing and it makes it kind of fun so Jackie Earl Haley as Sayre I mean Sayre is not really a, a character at all I mean he's just kind of a cipher um, that exists he, he doesn't he's just there he's just a he's just a character um, but he is one of the low men or a vampire, whatever, I mean, but he is still, he's still dressed in that, like, ugly, loud kind of clothing that they wear, so I really, that's one aesthetic that I hope they adhere to, because I would love to see him just draped in, in just red and yellow and, and just ugly colors, just being just obnoxious to look at, I think that that would be, I think that would be a lot of fun, um, but he's not the only character that um, has been cast. And up next we have, and this is from Empire Online, we have uh, Fran Kranz to play Peemly Prentice. And this is from Empire Online. Matthew McConaughey, Idris Elba, Tom Taylor, Abby Lee, and Jackie Earl Haley have already been announced. And the latest to join the extensive cast of Stephen King adaptation The Dark Tower is Fran Krantz. King's sprawling eight-novel saga charts gunslinger Roland Deschain and protege Chick Chambers on their quest to locate the titular tower, a central point in the universe, before dark forces, including McConaughey's villain Walter Paddock, invade and destroy it, wiping out reality. Kranz will play Peemly Prentice, transported to the world of the Dark Tower from our own to be a henchman for the evil Crimson King. If the name is unfamiliar, he's a favorite of Joss Whedon, with credits in Cabin in the Woods, Much Ado About Nothing, and Dollhouse. Um... So I and and then the rest of this article just kind of summarizes what I've already talked about. But so when I pictured uh, Peemly Prentice, I pictured him kind of as an older, an older guy, kind of bigger, heavy set. I don't remember exactly what the description in the book was, but just kind of a little bit more world weary and just just being in that middle management where it just grinds you down and wears you down. You just kind of get inured to the job and you try and be a good boss, but you just know that you're not like the boss and like no one likes you for what you do, but you go around you try and do, you know, so like just this kind of like, um, like an older, not necessarily Michael Scott, but Michael Scott toned down a little bit. Um, so, I mean, he's not what I pictured, but I'm telling you guys, I love Cabin in the Woods. Um, and I think that he, I think that he can pull off something like this. Um, I'm interested. He's, he has enough um, uh, individuality as an actor and a screen presence that I think that he would make this a very memorable scene. So I'm really interested to see him, especially if he is, I just, I, I, I'm interested to see him playing off of, um, of McConaughey because reports in, in earlier scripts uh, or, or rumors have it that McConaughey is, is hanging out a lot at Al Joel Ciento, which would be interesting. And um, that, that kind of gives me like a stand vibe, you know, you know, with it being Las Vegas and he's Randall Flagg and um, Fran Krantz would be his Lloyd Henry. So, I mean, it, 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 there are, I know guys, I know it's not the gunslinger. I know that it's not the gunslinger that King wrote um, way back when, but it's the Dark Tower. I just don't think of it as the gunslinger and think of it as the Dark Tower. Um, and from, you know, a couple episodes ago, I read um, some summaries of the original script from Ain't It Cool. And one of the things that they talked about in that in that review of the script was that it there are Easter eggs galore to Stephen King's other works. So, I mean, just structurally speaking, if that is the case, and Flag does spend time at Al Ciento and um, 
or or the man in black, Walter Odim, flag all same person, Martin. Uh, if if he does have screen time with with Pimley Prentice, then it definitely does um, invoke a a a relationship there between Lloyd Henry and Randall Flagg from the stand. So to me, I'm sorry, like agree to disagree for anyone that just wants it to to be exactly as is. To me, there's nothing about this that that says that it's not going to work. Um, I'm very interested in the changes here. I really, really am interested in the changes, and I and I hope that uh, I hope that it works out. Um, and there was one more bit. Of, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um, on my Facebook page and my Twitter account, I I mentioned uh, I, I shared some some pictures that showed up uh, from the the Dark Tower set. Um, and where they're filming and it shows some prosthetics being made of these like demon looking nuns as how they're described uh, and this this kind of temple looking thing set into a mountain and it's just so interesting and it just it just looks like another world and just really makes you wonder what exactly they're going for and the the, the, the demon looking women I mean they could be low men they could be vampires they could be the sisters of Illuria and um, set in the forehead it does look like there might be that bleeding eye I could be wrong, but I, I think that it does look like the bleeding eye. So, I mean, the fact that there's a little sister of Aluria, if that's the case, with a bleeding eye, come on. I mean, there there is legitimacy to this project. Um, so I'm excited, guys, and uh, I hope that I, I, I'm getting really excited all of the information that, that is coming out. All right, up next we have um, Yahoo published a list of eight uh Stephen King Easter eggs from 112263. Some of these I have covered already, but some of these I hadn't definitely not noticed. Um, uh, so it was it was really fun to read this. So the first is Kramer's Dairy in episode one. The milkman that Jake witnesses breaking a milk bottle over and over and over again works for the same dairy that employs Spike Milligan, the psycho delivery guy from the Skeleton Crew short story Morning Deliveries. As readers will recall, will recall Milligan always left a little something extra for his clients extras that include poisonous spider venom and other imbibble methods of death don't know how to pronounce that word sorry guys I'm losing my cred uh number two Bomber's Barbershop episode one as the titular heroine of Stephen King's 2006 novel Lisey's Story explores her dead husband's past she discovers that he came from a real screwed up family headed by an abusive father in one flashback that father orders his son to visit a mr bomber to get a trim bomber's 11 63 appearance contains a second shout out jake tells the barber that he's part of a main clan that hails from castle rock a popular king city that served as the setting for such novels as cujo and needful things uh three uh, Christine, and we knew this, we should have realized early on that there's something wrong with Sadie's ex-husband, Johnny Clayton. After all, when he picks her up in the first episode, he's driving Christine. The possessed Plymouth Fury that stars in King's novel and John Carpenter's movie version, both of which were released in 1983. According to Carpenter, the production was able to use one of the few surviving Plymouths seen in the film. They had 14 cars and smashed 13 of them. This is the last remaining Christine. That's a cool bit of trivia. Uh, number four. Jake quotes Annie Wilkes. Jake creepily channels Misery's Annie Wilkes while disentangling himself from JFK's security detail. Would you let this guy go if he claimed to be your number one fan? Number five, Blue Ribbon Laundry. When she's not terrorizing her super shy, super powered daughter Carrie, Holy Terror Margaret White literally rinses the town of Chamberlain's dirty laundry 
Oh my god. It's clever. Uh, Margaret White literally rinses the town of Chamberlain's dirty laundry at the Blue Ribbon. Apparently there's a branch down in Kentucky as well, hopefully minus the religion, religious fundamentalism. Number six, Yoder's Five and Dime Store. The small five and dime that poor little Harry wanders into after local bullies leave him pantsless is named Yoder's, the same convenience shop that serves as the town that services the town of Tarker's Mills, uh, located down the road from the doomed domed burg of Chester's Mill and under the dome. Tarker's Mill uh, was the setting um, of Cycle of the Werewolf slash Silver Bullet. Number seven, Norbert Keene. Even though he's not named, uh, Carpenter tells us that Yoder's pharmacist serving Jake's food and advice is Norbert Keene, the proprietor of Derry's Center Street Drugstore from It. Number eight, Annette O'Toole. And this one bummed me out when I read this. Speaking of It, episode guest star Annette O'Toole, who plays the stern Christian woman that rents Jake a room in her house during the whole Kill Harry's Dad mission, starred in the seminal 1990 miniseries based on King's blockbuster novel. Um, but Carpenter claims that the casting coincident wasn't intentional. Boo! Annette is a friend of one of our writers, Quentin Peoples. It's a happy coincidence for the deep divers. Number nine, Children of the Corn. While walking to Harry's house during a Halloween parade, Jake pauses for a moment to regard two kids dressed in eye-catching costumes, an Amish-like farmer and accompanying monster clad in green pajamas and a bizarre mask. Could this be a deep-cut reference to Children of the Corn's corn-obsessed god, he who walks behind the rose, and one of the youthful Gatlin residents he lords over? I think that's something you put in your own mind, but I love it, Carpenter says laughing. What do you say, King Lovers? Are we onto something here? 10. Uh, Pennywise. Uh, we may have made up the Children of the Corn connection, but this kid wearing a clown mask is definitely no accident. Carpenter confirms it's a Pennywise reference, even though the dime store mask is far less impressive than Tim Curry's amazing makeup job. We wanted it to appear super homemade, she says. Number 11. Greg Stilson Territory. When Jake and Bill attend a rally for staunchly racist political candidate General Walker, little do they suspect they're walking into the same church where another dangerous politician, the Dead Zone's Greg Stilson, will take the podium a few decades hence. Like David Cronenberg's excellent 1983 film adaptation of King's 1979 novel, 112263, that's a lot of numbers, was filmed largely in Ontario, Canada, and Carpenter says they knowingly reused that specific location for this scene. That's awesome. That's really cool. Uh, number 12, Dirty Little Birdie. Another episode, another famous Annie Wilkesism. In this case, it's a clean freak. It's clean freak, emphasis on the word freak, Johnny, who borrows the Misery Queen's line in order to verbally cut down his estranged wife, Sadie, after physically cutting her face. Frankly, dude, it's your fault that she's not looking her cleanest right now. Number 13, Westover Bleach. When he's not torturing his ex-wife and her new lover, Johnny sells cleaning supplies for his company, Westover Bleach. He's so confident in the quality of bleach, he's willing to give Jake a free sample. Westover is referenced in Cary and is as a main town that occasionally reports on the strange activity happening in Chamberlain. Number uh, 14, this is not a Stephen Kingism, but it's one that I love nevertheless, Panther Pride. Not all of the Easter eggs in 112263 are King-related. As a former writer-producer for Friday Night Lights, Carpenter made sure to slip in a reference to her beloved Dylan Panthers. When a police officer seeks to interrogate Jake after the mess Johnny Clayton caused, high school principal Deke Simmons distracts him by recalling a past football triumph. This clearly was a pre-Eric Taylor Panther squad, though. Coach Taylor never would have allowed an opposing team TD on a Hail Mary toss. 
Number 15, Flagpole Sitta. And this one is so fun. While racing through the throngs of Dallas residents turning out to see JFK, Jake, and Sadie pass by a long-haired weirdo on a bike, that weirdo is none other than Randall Flagg, a frequent presence in the Kingverse. Whether he's remaking society in his dark image after the cataclysmic events of The Stand or pursuing the gunslinger in King's beloved The Dark Tower series. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's Flagg. It's like the Jamie Sheridan-styled flag, uh, just all decked out in jeans, jean jacket, and he's got the long hair. Um, it's so fun. I did not know this until I, I saw that. That's great. Number 16 is one that I referenced, Red Rum. King himself told us that he'd award 900 points to any viewer who spotted this shining shout-out. We're coming to collect, Uncle Stevie. Number 17, walking the green mile. Before being led by be, before being led Jack Ruby style through a parade of reporters, the Dallas cops warned Jake that he might have a date with old Sparky, the same nickname for the electric chair that claimed John Coffey's life in the green mile. I wrote that on the spot, Carpenter says. And lastly, Jake's last stand. When he travels back to the future, and this one that I talked about too, when he travels back to the future after successfully saving JFK, Jake is met with an apocalyptic wasteland that's been nuked back to the Stone Age. Worse horrors apparently wait in this alternate timeline as well. Graffiti that's glimpsed in the background refers to Captain Trips, the disease that wipes out much of humanity in the stand. At least one person saw America's dark future coming. In episode 7, an inmate at the asylum uh, housing Jake's erstwhile accomplice Bill can be heard muttering, I am Captain Trips to himself. So I think that that's fun, guys. All right. So what I'm going to do now, um, so thank you, Andrea, for, for sending me that list of the, the 18 Stephen King Easter eggs. Uh, one of our listeners uh, sent that my way. And then, um, so what I'm going to read now is from What Culture, uh, LZ Moreland, another listener, um, sent, sent this out. Um, and it's eight Stephen King characters who deserve their own book. And this is fun. This is a fun list. So... Um, I'm going to restart this, just reload my page. Um, it just makes you think about, you know, what what characters, uh, you know, work and what characters, um, you know, would be great uh, to, to see more of. So first up... Um, so I'm just going to read what they say here. Uh, when it comes to the brilliant Stephen King characters, the choices are truly endless. From The Shining's Jack Torrance, The Green Miles... Uh, Paul Edgecombe to the Stan Stewart Redman. King is responsible for writing some of the most memorable main characters in fiction. But just because a character isn't main doesn't mean that they can't be memorable. King's talent extends so far that even his side and minor characters are fleshed out and intriguing. Indeed, it's a practically impossible to open a King novel without being confronted by a brilliant cast of unique people. In fact, some of these characters have so much depth and complexity that they practically demand their own novels. Their stories are distinct enough that they're meant that they merit their own telling. From a mysterious artist who accidentally paints a living curse to certain women with telekinetic powers who show up at the very end of Carrie, here are eight Stephen King characters who desperately deserve their own books. Number eight, George Bruckner. George Bruckner's first and only appearance in the King canon takes place in Grandma, a story, a short story that's part of a 1985 collection called Skeleton Crew. The story is unique in that it directly acknowledges characters, creatures, and unearthly forces that appear in the writings of H.P. Lovecraft, making it a story set in the Cthulhu mythos. The story is rather simpler and simple in nature, but it spawns a brilliant character nevertheless. Bruckner is an 11-year-old boy who lives with his mother Ruth and brother and but Bruckner is an 11-year-old boy who lives with his mother Ruth 
and brother, Buddy. The family are forced to move to Castle Rock in Maine so that Ruth can care for her sick mother. Once there, George realizes that there's something sinister and supernatural about Grandma, who dies when he's alone in the house with her and then rises from the dead and attempts to seize him. At the end of the story, it's implied that George has been possessed by Grandma as he strikes down his Aunt Flo with a brain aneurysm. The story arises, raises so many questions and spawns a potentially fantastic villain a witch or spirit that manages to infiltrate families and slowly kill them off at the end of the story george is a sinister carrie-esque figure but it feels like his story is just beginning it's for this reason that a standalone story about bruckner would be so perfect most of king's characters have a sense of finality to their arc whether sinister or otherwise but george's story feels like a setup for something even larger which i yeah i mean i never i never thought of that i mean this was a fun list um totally fun list and so I, I i enjoy the the idea that there's a little witch boy that that grows up possessed by a by a bigger force number seven abigail Fremantle, a woman with 32 grandchildren 91 great grandchildren and three great great grandchildren is surely someone with an interesting story to tell abigail Fremantle commonly referred to as Mother Abigail, is one of many, many characters to appear in The Stand, but she earns a place on this list due to her uncanny ability to outlive so many people around her, including all of those mentioned offspring and her three former husbands. Um, Abigail's story is so well fleshed out and has a fitting, bittersweet conclusion. Yet the world of The Stand is so rich and has so many potential uh, for backstory that would be very interesting to see a prequel focusing on mother abigail would be a great way to introduce readers to the world of the stand before the plague as well as detailing the state of society um, as it began to take over that's not to mention all the tragic characters we meet given how abigail's entire family succumbs this one of all the characters i don't think that we need any more mother abigail because we really do get her backstory i mean there are enough sequences where we learn about her growing up what her family was like um, when she was growing up so i i just think that that's one um that we definitely don't need mother abigail's story is definitely told number six is the appalachian woman's daughter also known as the woman who writes the final letter that appears in Carrie. Okay, so it might seem rather controversial to suggest King write a sequel to one of his most famous novels but if he's willing to write a sequel to the shining why not Carrie? The close of Carrie details the final White Commitment Committee report, which concludes that no one else like Carrie exists, and so such a horrific tragedy won't happen again. Yet just after that, we read a letter from an Appalachian woman to her sister detailing her daughter's fascinating telekinetic powers. That's why the Appalachian woman's daughter demands to have her own novel. She's the clearest and most logical way to revisit some of the story elements found in Carrie, one of King's most iconic works. Were King to flesh out this character, it would be an interesting way to explore the nature of Carrie's abilities without actually writing more about Carrie herself. Like Doctor Sleep, the sequel to The Shining, such a sequel could be vastly different to the original, while still expanding the context. Besides, the ending to Carrie is such a tease, it's impossible not to speculate as to who this daughter is, what she can do, and what the fate of her grandmother was, who apparently had similar powers. And it would be great if, um, you know, that, that letter gets sent out and uh, someone from the shop picks it up and this woman, uh, this girl grew up in the confines of the shop. And maybe she's trained um, and uh, she's like government controlled and sent out to go um, uh, hunt down Charlie McGee from Firestarter. How awesome would that be? 
Number five, Dick Holleran. Uh, Dick Holleran first appears in The Shining, a book that needs absolutely no introduction. Holleran works as a cook at the Overlook Hotel, and like Danny Torrance, the novel's protagonist, he possesses the Shining ability, which is basically a form of clairvoyance that makes one sensitive to preternatural forces. This alone makes him worthy of revisiting uh, given how the Shining ability is one of the most fascinating powers in King's entire bibliography. There's even more that makes him great. Holleran shows up again in It, referred to as an army cook and a member of the African-American army nightclub, The Black Spot, which is burned to the ground by the Legion of White Decency. When this happens, Holleran uses his Shining ability to save several people from the fire. Not only that, but we discover that Holleran is one of the very few sane adults who can actually see It. While Holleran's fleeting appearance are undoubtedly part of the reason that makes him special, his ability is just too interesting not to want to explore it further. Despite Danny Torrance sharing the same gift, we only really see it in the context of the Overlook Hotel, and to a lesser extent in Dr. Sleep, in which Holleran is again mentioned, specifically to have died in 1999. A novel that focuses on Holleran's early life and his time as an army cook would be a fantastic way to give readers more information on the Shining ability without dipping directly into that well one more and i agree i mean dick is uh i think dick made my list of uh top 10 stephen king mentor figures slash supporting characters i mean he's a great character you know there's just something that that you just love about him and and the more that we were able to get it with him i i think that we'd all be um lucky for it Number four, Bobby Hastings. I can't stand what's happening to me. This is the final sentiment of Bobby Hastings, expressed whoops, expressed via a note pinned to his chest before hanging himself in his parents' basement. Yet despite knowing how Hastings' life ends, his life has such a rich potential for an extended story. Hastings is first referred to in the story, the short story The Road Virus Heads North, originally published in the collection 99, or sorry, 999. The Road Virus Heads North tells the story of author Richard Cannell, who purchases an eerie painting created by Hastings. It soon transpires that the painting is subtly changing, depicting the future as the figure in the portrait makes its way towards Cannell to murder him. But the most curious detail in the story isn't so much the painting as itself as the painter. During the story, we learn that Hastings was an extremely prolific, drug-addicted artist who attempted to burn everything he'd ever painted and sketched before hanging himself. The whole thing is so mysterious that it was... It would be amazing to see it expanded through his own work. What exactly was happening to Hastings? How did he manage to paint a literal curse? And why did it only work on one particular painting? There are so many questions demanding answers. In the end, though, the most obvious reason why Hastings needed his own story is this. When a rather throwaway character, throwaway set-up character for introducing a murderous curse demands more attention than the curse itself, well, why wouldn't you rather revisit them? Um, and... This is a character I think that I referred to in um, when I was reviewing Everything's Eventual because it's very similar to Dinky Earnshaw's powers, at least how Dinky Earnshaw's powers were um, uh, revealed in that short story in the Everything Eventual collection. Uh, Dinky's powers don't really look the same when he pops up again in the Dark Tower series, but um, but yeah, that, that ability to just inflict harm when you literally draw or write on something... Um, I think that's an interesting, interesting uh, way to go about. Okay, number three is Tom Cullen. When it comes to The Stand, one of King's first forays into fantasy, Tom Cullen is easily one of the novel's most memorable characters. In fact, Cullen, who was a mentally handicapped man who previously lived with his mother and abusive father, is one of King's best characters in general, proving that all kinds of people, regardless of health or mental prowess, are complex, generous, and have something valuable to offer. 
Kind and cheerful, Colin meets Nick Andros after the plague ravages the town of May and renders him the last living resident. The two travel together and become close friends, and it's during this time that Tom's hidden characteristics rise to the fore. It transpires that Tom has a lot more to offer the group than is initially apparent, and he later shows off intellect and great psychic abilities while under hypnosis, referring to this part of himself as Tom, God's Tom. Exploring what exactly God's Tom is and what its potential implications are would be a brilliant subject to explore. We're giving a hint of Colin's potential towards the end of his appearance in The Stand, but a whole story dedicated to Tom's future in the Boulder Free Zone would be terrific. Um, this is one that I don't agree with. I I think that the world of The Stand is closed, and if we were to pick up the, the world of The Stand, I, I, I would be more interested to see um, the life of, of Stu and Franny and, and their child. Okay, number two is Ralph Anderson. And I, this one is great, great idea. Um, somewhat uniquely, this entry is based not on a Stephen King novel, but a screenplay written by King entitled Storm of the Century. Despite being written from the ground up for television, the screenplay for Storm of the Century was subsequently published in book form in 1999, not long after the airing of the TV miniseries. It tells the story of the town of Little Tall Island and the mysterious murderer Andre Lenoge. Over the course of the narrative, it transpires that Lenoge is a 4,000-year-old wizard who has the power to cause um, others to commit suicide, among other gruesome things. Lenoge is desperate for an heir, in layman's terms. It's difficult to continue being an evil, murderous psychopath when you're 4,000 years old. Lenoge earns a place on this list because he's so different than your standard villainous king entity. For a start... The idea that a 4,000-year-old wizard is getting too old to murder people is hilarious. But it's the fact that he actually manages to succeed that really makes him interesting, and even more so because it involves successfully kidnapping the protagonist, Mike Anderson's young child, Ralph. So Lenoge gets his heir. Then what? Lenoge himself is such a creepy, obscure character, which makes little Ralphie even more curious by proxy. Is he trained by Lenoge possessed? Is there a spirit within Lenoge that enters Ralph, or must he be taught to kill? To see Ralph return to Little Tall Island terrorizing his family would be very interesting material indeed. I'm going to go one step further. I would like to use Ralphie as the point of view to explore um, a different aspect of Midworld because I imagine that that's where he would go back to. I I just get the sense that that is like the source of magic, that when a character like Lenoge shows up, he really is popping up from from Midworld, um, from, from the Dark Tower. So... I, I always viewed that as, without saying so, tied to the Dark Tower mythos. So I, like, listeners of this show um, have probably heard me kind of talk about how I'd like to see a story involving one of the characters we already know, whether it be Randall Flagg or, uh, or, or Ralphie, and, and, and getting their story and having them bump up against other Stephen King characters like Leland Gaunt. So, I mean, I just think that, that was, this would be a good way um, to, to see, like, the, the more wizard-type characters in, in the Dark Tower series. But that's a great idea. Um, and number one is... A, <laughs> I don't know why you would go with number one. Um, I kind of thought it was a joke when this list populated it. Um, it does not make any sense to me. Um, but that is Mr. Gray. 
Um, now, I know what you're thinking. Isn't Mr. Gray essentially a main character in Dreamcatcher? Well, perhaps in Dreamcatcher, Gray plays the role of an antagonist desperate for revenge after his home planet is destroyed. But that's exactly what makes him such a prime candidate for his own novel and the number one pick for this list. One of the things that King does best is explore complexity and, if you'll pardon the pun, how most people aren't black and white but various shades of gray. When it comes down to it, we all know that gray is the last of his race and that humans are responsible for killing and destroying the rest of his people, which raises a bunch of pertinent questions. Where was Mr. Gray from? Why did humans destroy his planet and civilization? Why were they a threat? How did Gray himself manage to survive? To see another side of one of King's most memorable villains would be brilliant, especially since he's got a backstory so ripe for exploration. These questions aren't necessary to enjoy the story of Dreamcatcher, um, what Dreamcatcher is attempting to tell. But a look back at what happened would be incredibly interesting, and portraying Mr. Gray as the unassuming protagonist could make some serious depth and complexity to the character. Um, okay, guys. So just if I were to, to add to this list, I, I think that um, I want more adventures of Abra Stone and Danny Torrance um, and to continue the, the stories going in, in, in from Dr. Sleep. I've already referenced Charlie McGee, and I've said this before, her on the run from the shop would be fantastic um to have ellie from pet cemetery go back to to ludlow um and like what if she blocked out all memories and starts to get like visions or something and she needs to to go back that something is wrong something is wrong and she goes back and then she goes to the pet cemetery what happens there i think that would be fun peter and thomas from eyes of the dragon we never got the story of how they hunted down flag um i think it's peter and thomas or is it thomas and dennis i can't remember but or Dennis, yeah, wh whoever the two the two boys at the end of Eyes of the Dragon that go hunt down Flag, we never saw that, so let's get that story. I've already said before, Flag. Let's get Flag's backstory. Let's tell um like a satirical novel um, through the eyes of of Flag um, in the world of Midworld, popping up in various locations. I think that that would be a lot of fun. Richard Dees, of course, you you know how much of a fan I am of this particular character and what could be done with this particular character. Um, from the, the Night Flyer and, and the Dead Zone. David Carver from Desperation. What is David Carver like now? What happens when God calls upon him again? We can have these, we can have continuing stories of David Carver that I think would be great. Rhea the Coos. Come on, this is a character that we need to know more about. I would love to see more uh, Rhea the, Co the Coos. And lastly, Tim Stouthart. Tim from Wind Through the Keyhole, it was insinuated that he is going to have more adventures that he eventually, in his own quest, reaches the Dark Tower. For what reason? Why? What is the life of Tim Stouthart like? I want to know. Stephen King, write me a story. Tell me about Stephen. Tell me about Tim Stouthart. Um, okay, guys, and that is all that I have for now. Um, which brings me to the announcement that I wanted to make. So, um, as you know, lately, uh, it's now the end of April. It's, it's almost May. Um, it's Saturday, April 30th and, uh, tomorrow was May 1st. So I, 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 I think I was only able to get one episode out in the month of April, which is not me. Um, I have prided myself on the fact that I have released, usually with the last couple months, um, if you ignore the last couple months, but for the majority of this podcast, I've been able to release one episode a week, at the very least. I mean, my, my, my record was six episodes in a day. So I, as a fan of listening to podcasts myself I know how much it sucks when there's a podcast that I like that doesn't come out on time I mean there's like an agreement that we make um 
you know, between the listener and, and the podcast host, and that agreement is, you know, I'll, I'll give you uh, the what you what you want. I'll give you your episode uh, once a week. Um, and so when that week passes, and you start to wonder where the next episode's coming from, and then another week passes, it just it just kind of sucks. Um, so I apologize, everybody, for for being so so late um, with this particular episode. Um, but I, from the get go. Um, the, the, the point of the Stephen King cast, right, was to, um, it was one man's musings on the works of Stephen King, um, in which I reviewed each of his works in the public, in the chronological order of publication. Well, I've hit that. I've hit that. And, um, I, I did want to continue to put out some content because I know that you all wanted it. Um, but the more that I've been thinking about it, I've, I'm still attracting listeners and I want to make sure that this podcast is, is true to what I set out for it to be, um, a, 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 a real review and analysis. Um, because I don't want one of a new, I don't want a new listener to just listen to this episode and think that this is, is what the, the podcast is. This is, this is, you know, I'm going to be honest, it's a little more watered down than what I started it being. And I, I want to, to, to stick with the quality that I envisioned for it when I, when I sat down to record this podcast. Um, so my point is this, guys. Um, usually at this point in the podcast, I'd say, I'll see you here next week. Um, but I'm not going to say that uh, because I don't know when the next episode is going to come. I'm not saying it's the end. This is not the end of the Stephen King cast. But um, for a couple reasons, I'm going to get into one is the quality, but there's some others um, that listeners might have already picked up on. Um, but there are some other reasons why I'm just not going to be able to generate one episode a week um, from this point forward. Uh, so, so yes, one is the quality, and I want to make sure that the quality is good, and I want to make sure that it's still a review-based um, podcast. So what that means is this, is that you're going to be guaranteed, 100% guaranteed a review of the next Mr. Mercedes book that comes out in June. So it's May, you're not going to have to wait that much longer. And still, I mean, The Dark Tower is filming. So if there is juicy news and I do have some time, I might record an episode. So you might get some content between now and the time of the release. Um, but after after uh, The Finder's Keepers, I'm not quite sure. It, then we're hitting the summer. Maybe I'll have some time on my hands in the summer. Maybe I'll review Heart Shape Box. I don't want to make any promises. Maybe I'll review the um, the Pine Deep trilogy from Jonathan Madberry. Maybe I'll review some of the, the short stories that I, I didn't review the first time around from different seasons and Night Shift and Nightmares and Dreamscapes and Everything's Eventual and Just After Sunset. Maybe I will. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe I won't. Um, maybe I'll review some of the, the movies, uh, the terrible Stephen King adaptations. Maybe I'll do that. I don't want to say yes, but I don't want to say no. Um, but I do want to say that the podcast is not over. It's just changing um, the uh, oh, uh, how often you're going to get your new episodes. So if a week goes by, if two weeks goes by, if a month goes by, two months goes by, and, and, and episodes are not showing up in your podcast feed, the podcast is not over, okay? When the podcast is officially done, Dunsky, and I, I am finishing up and I realize that it's time in my life to stay, to step away and say goodbye, I will release a goodbye episode. So until you hear that final episode, um, expect more episodes. I just don't know when they're going to come out. It just won't be guaranteed that, they're come out, that they'll come out at least once a week. <clears throat> 
So that's one reason, the quality of the podcast. The second is this. Um, here's a little anecdote. Uh, this past year, I, I went to a, a Van Morrison cover band. And it was great. It was great. Don't get me wrong. Moondance is the name of the band. Uh, and the band was on point, and the lead singer comes out, and he's a little guy, um, you know, kind of round, comes out, you know, little black suit, got his tie, has a pair of sunglasses on, has his, his little black hat on, looks just like Van Morrison. And for two hours, he's going through Van Morrison songs, and he's doing Van Morrison moves, and he's he's got, you know, Van Morrison's just... Uh, you know, cadence and, and rhythms to his voice sounds just like him. And he, he, he just, you know, he embodies Van Morrison. It was great. It was just a great, um, if you're not going to be able to see Van the Man, uh, this, 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 you know, did the job. I mean, it was Van Morrison. It was a good Van Morrison cover band. So as, as much as I was enjoying it, I was having this existential crisis uh, as the, as the, the, the night went on. Um, because I realized, oh my God, night in and night out, this man, um, makes a living and uh dedicates his life and and um you know is identified really um by the larger works of another man and i realized oh my god since august of 2014 um all of my creative energy has been spent on analyzing and reviewing um and just talking about the works of another man and I, that hit me hard, hard, and I realized that I was the moon dance to Stephen King's Van Morrison, and it just hurt, it, honestly, in, in, a, in a, like, it just, it just sucked in that moment, like, that I, I'm not creating new content, I'm not trying to be the next Van Morrison, I am settling for being Moondance, and there's nothing wrong with Moondance, and there's nothing wrong with the lead singer. I thought he was great. Don't get me wrong; it's it's a good way to make a couple extra bucks on the side. I mean, this guy, I'm sure he has his his full time job Monday through Friday. On the weekends, he parties out, um, and that's great. It's fine, you know. I mean, and this is not the the source of income for me or anything. I don't make any money off of this, and this is just where I have kind of spent my creative energies um, for almost two years now. Uh but it it just kind of. I didn't like that feeling. So, I mean, the, the point of the story is this. A as you know, at the top of these episodes, I have been plugging my own work, uh, the short stories that, that, that I, I have written. So I'm not going to talk too much about writing and the writing process because you know that I don't like that. But, um, I mean, it. when I started up the podcast, um, one of the reasons I started up the podcast was because there was a void in my life of creativity Um I, I, I had a new job that didn't, not necessarily didn't allow for creative expression, but my previous job um, required me to have a lot of, of creativity and all of my creative energy was going into the job. Um, but when I got a new job, I didn't have that natural professional output. So I needed to find something else and the Stephen King cast was, was perfect. Um, but I mean, in retrospect, I mean, wouldn't, I mean, personally, um, wouldn't it be, have really been better if I had spent all of my hours just trying to create new rather than talk about what was already created. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, that's just kind of what I've been thinking is that it's not that it was a missed opportunity. I don't regret making the podcast at all. It's just that at this point, now that there has been some validation that, hey, you know what, like the stuff that I, I've kind of scribbled out isn't bad, 
it's not great, but it isn't bad. Um, I, I just kind of want to see what I can do with it, um, if I can get accepted into any more um, publications, because, um, like I said, um, acceptance of unsolicited uh, solicitations are, aren't, aren't necessarily that easy, and I just want to see what I can do creatively with my own writing, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so I would just kind of like to rechannel a lot of my energies um, into that venue for no other reason than just to kind of um, sharpen the, that edge um, of, of that particular blade. Um, and lastly, and most importantly, um, like I said, uh, keen-eared listeners probably have picked up on this both literally in this episode and probably have read between the lines in... Um, episodes throughout the, the last uh, 10 or so months um, that I, I had talked about some changes uh, coming and major changes have hit. So uh, you might have, long-time listeners, um, I, I, I know that you have enjoyed uh, the, the sounds of my, 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 my co-hosts, my, my two pugs, but I'm proud to announce that the, the Stephen King cast now officially has a a, uh, a third co-host, uh, less furry, but uh, nevertheless just as precious. Um, so, guys, yeah, uh, in March, um, I was I was blessed enough to become a father of uh, of a really awesome uh, kid. Uh, she's great. She's she's fantastic, and um, you know she she made her debut earlier in this episode. I, I had her with me, uh, and I was rocking her to sleep. But she, uh, you might hear some cooing. Oh, there she is. She is right there, um, and some sucking sound. She was she was eating her fingers. Um, but yeah, it's a huge step um, for for my wife and I. And I kind of just wanna, I just wanna be in the moment, and I just wanna do the dad thing right. I just wanna get it right. So that means that I I just can't can't focus the amount of time um that i i had been uh with the podcast from this point forward i just i can't i mean i think i need to prioritize my life a little bit more um because i got one chance at this every moment um is the only moment really that i'll, I'll ever i'll ever have with her in that uh in that opportunity uh, so i want to make the most out of every moment that's that's given to me so um so yeah guys i know that it's kind of a bummer that the the king cast will not be coming out on a weekly basis but you know fear not it is definitely not the end um you know like i said uh when finders keepers comes out there there will be an episode there or not finders keepers i'm sorry what, what's it gonna be called end of watch when end of watch comes out uh boring a title as it is uh, i will definitely review it um maybe and you know between then maybe there'll be like a i don't know like a dark tower teaser trailer maybe there'll be more set photos maybe there'll be um official uh cast stills that are released who knows maybe more casting maybe bigger announcements will be made um maybe there's going to be you know big it news coming out or, or a big um book announcement maybe Stephen King's gonna pick up the Dark Tower um as a supplemental text to the movie who knows who knows what's gonna happen but if big news happens guys I will record some thoughts and and put it out there um and listen um so you're not so who knows what's gonna happen between now and the uh the time the the next book comes out but in the meantime I I just I really want to say um I, I can't express just how much I appreciate how much the Stephen King cast has been 
to all of you um, and all of the hours that you have put into listening to it and spreading the word and all of the, the ridiculously kind iTunes reviews and Facebook messages and tweets and uh, emails. Uh, like I said in the very first episode, I cannot do this without all of you, um, and it's because of all of you, you have made this the most sought after Stephen King podcast uh, on the internet, which is... <sighs> It's awesome. It is. I, I, I can't can't really uh, can't really comprehend that. Um, but it's it's all because of you guys. I mean, we are a community. We are our, our, a larger quartet, um, so to speak. Um, and I, I just I've appreciated every every minute that I have put into this uh, sharing this experience with all of you. So I know this kind of sounds like the end and goodbye, but uh, but it is it's goodbye for now. Um, but guys, just thank you. Thank you for everything. Thank you for just being there. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. Um, thank you for spreading the word. Just thank you. Thank you for being Stephen King fans and challenging me and forcing me to, to put on the best podcast that I possibly could and to um, strike out on in, in new areas of my life. Um, I never thought that I would be a podcaster. I never thought that I would... Um, do any any do anything like this and it's it's because of this podcast that you you asked for more of and i and and you asked uh and and, and the more people started listening the more legitimate it became and the the harder i tried and so the the, the deeper i read into stephen king's works and that helped inspire me to start um trying to get my own stuff published and starting to do some more writing on my own and so i mean my the the next step that i took in my life is directly related because of of you guys so just everybody out there listening right now um, whether you are in the United States of America um, or if you are in Canada or if you are in um, South America or overseas wherever you are um, the, 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 the idea or if you're in, in, a, in another world if you're in somewhere else in the, the multiverse uh, the, the idea that I am recording this um, in my basement, in, in this little area that I call home, knowing that my thoughts and these words and my child's sounds uh, will be distributed across the the, uh, the ether and the multiverse is it's mind-boggling. Um, but just thank you guys and girls, and just thank you all for, for listening. And uh, may you have long days and pleasant nights. And I will see you here next time, where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast. Mom.